Welcome back to PCO's Executive Speaker Series, a series where we provide our clients unfettered access to candid conversations with industry-leading CEOs, executives, and entrepreneurs on the most interesting topics of today. I'm Allie Berry. I work in business development at Patrick Hoff Co., and today I'll be sitting down with Scott Gilley, who in this conversation brought his extensive experience in the franchising world to provide us with insight and guidance on investing in the industry. Hope you enjoy the conversation, and if you have any questions or would like to be connected with Scott directly, please do not hesitate to reach out. Enjoy. So, Scott, thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, thanks for the intro, Ali. It's a pleasure to to be here this evening, and I appreciate everyone's time. So, um, I'm looking forward to having a 30 to 40 minute conversation with all y'all about about something that's been near and dear to my heart for many years, which is the franchise business. And I'd like to say right out the gate that I'm primarily familiar with um, the restaurant franchise side of the business. There are many service related franchises, but my experience is, is in fast food, essentially. And so even to the extent I don't have a huge amount of experience in casual dining, anything with a drive through is, is what I've primarily been focused on throughout my throughout my career. And I've been in this business, gosh, starting about 30 years ago as a um, as a district manager for Taco Bell. And so you may say, why did I get into this business? Truthfully, I spent some time in the military after graduating from college and I went into the pharmaceutical sales business and I spent about two years doing that. And it honestly just didn't challenge me and it wasn't very exciting. I got a call from a recruiter 30 years ago who was recruiting for Taco Bell at the time, and they were looking to develop locations in what they called non-traditional venues at that, you know, at that point in their in their progression. And so, um, as I got into the business, I discovered it was more closely related to what I was doing in the military, which was a true general manager type of job in all sense of the word. So, when you're running a fast food restaurant, you are a general manager, you have HR responsibility, you have marketing responsibility, operational responsibility. So it's a lot of things. There's never a dull moment. And and honestly, once it gets in your blood, I've I've never regretted it and I've never looked back. And so it's been a great 30-year run of, as Ali said, I've been on the franchisor side in operations and primarily in development. Um, and then became a franchisee for the first time in 2010 when I acquired 18 Popeyes in the Baton Rouge market and um, and operated those for a while. So I've been on the franchisee side primarily for the last eh, 13 odd years, and um, and have had some 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 good successes as well as some mistakes I've made through those years. So we can chat about that. Um, just to kind of go through and talk about some of the things that you might think about as you're uh, looking at potential franchise concepts to invest in. You know, really we could start with the how a typical franchise, how a typical franchise works and the relationship between the franchisor and the franchisee. So yeah, um, that, I think that would be super helpful. And also just touching on kind of how that payment structure works, any of the upfront costs, the royalties, kind of any of how that development works and the relationship between um, the franchisor, parent level, and the, all of the franchisees that are operated. Absolutely. So if if typically the way a franchisee comes in, and most folks have probably looked and Googled whatever franchise they may be interested in. So the franchisor will receive the inquiry from the prospective franchisee, the full out a rudimentary form that has some information as it relates to 
personal information. There's probably some criteria as it relates to net worth and liquidity, depending upon the franchise concept that the fr that the prospective franchisee would need to show. So um, the more the the larger, more expensive franchises and the ones that are more well known, the national brands, for example, Taco Bell or Popeyes, they're typically going to require some level of experience owning and operating and developing in a multi-unit environment in whatever market that you're interested in developing for Popeyes in a non-competing brand. So in other words, a Taco Bell franchise, uh, if someone's interested in a Taco Bell franchise, um, maybe you already have 20 or 30 Popeyes and you're interested in becoming a Taco Bell franchisee to expand your portfolio and uh, achieve some economies of scale. And, and it also is a divesting kind of an opportunity so that in the event Taco Bell is not doing well, maybe your Popeyes can, can pick up the slack. So when you go to a franchisor, you apply, you're approved based upon the criteria that you bring to the table. Um, the franchisor will disclose the franchisee with what is called a franchise disclosure document. And that's really the main piece of information that you need from a franchisor. So the franchise disclosure document is, is, is a 300 page document that has everything as it relates to the franchise, all the royalties, all the fees, what the investment typically costs. Um, they have disclosures in what they call an item 19 or an earnings claim that shows what the average unit will do in sales. Sometimes they do show profitability in that document, but that's a document that you really want to, if you're seriously considering investing in a franchise, you want to understand that document for whatever franchise you're considering, you want to understand it front to back. And so that is your first and preliminary source of information and, and would kind of probably help you get through the deal killers. And that's where you'll find out like, what's the franchise fee? What's the royalty rate? What's the investment, et cetera? What territory is open and available? Um, and, 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 and so once you, once you uh, review that document, then you proceed with the franchisor through their, their application and development process. So then you would go in and, and you would have conversation on, um, you know, at their corporate office typically to, to discuss in more detail the opportunity. So, so the franchise point, disclosure document is the very beginning for sure. So at that point, it's kind of like an interview process between the franchisee who's going to run the new location or whatever. And then they're being interviewed by the franchisor, you're saying the parent company, who's going to determine if they're capable of running and operating this whole new kind of location, correct? That's exactly right. And so- okay. Um, and dependent upon the franchise, you know, dependent upon the investment really and the uh, demand for the franchise would determine like the 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 um, the, the desirability of the franchisor to bring in the franchisee. And so it's going to be more difficult to do a deal with Taco Bell, for example, than it's going to be with some small up and coming franchises trying to trying to get out the shoot. So um, that's uh that's kind of the preliminary part of the process. And how um, much how much can those upfront fees be? And can you walk through a little bit of kind of, so let's say I want to open a Taco Bell location. I'm going through the process of interviewing with Taco Bell. Um, is there a fee that I'm paying upfront and how large can that be? Or what's kind of the general range that that can be? Right. And so it just, there's some things you look at when you're when you're evaluating a franchise and for for a concept like Taco Bell there's a variety of different costs to consider so the fees and the royalties honestly is re are really the smaller part of the investment the main part of the investment is what is it going to cost to build the building to equip the building to equip the the property and to and to open the restaurant and 
So typically when you're looking at a franchise and you're looking at the investment, and that's in what they call item seven of the franchise disclosure document, when you're looking at the investment, it'll have a low to high range of what it's going to cost, depending upon where you're going with the Taco Bell. So for example, a Taco Bell inside of a convenience store is going to be less expensive than a freestanding Taco Bell on, on Main and Main where you have to purchase real estate. And that's the other part of it. There was a question about the, you know, who owns the real estate typically. It could go either way. So if you're an operator, your main objective should be to find the best location. And if you have a desire to own the real estate component, then you pursue the real estate component. But if the if the best location is a situation where you're either doing a ground lease or you're you're um, doing a build to suit, which means a developer comes in and builds the building for you, and then you lease it back from that developer based upon a prearranged you know kind of a financial investment, then um, then then you're paying you're just going to be paying rent for ten or twenty years depending upon the term of the actual franchise agreement. And so the the investment range is going to vary. Lots of freestanding fast food. Um, Taco Bell, Popeyes, et cetera, they're going to be probably in the neighborhood of a million to $2 million, not including the real estate, and just depending upon the scope of, of what you're trying to, uh, of the size of the facility and where the facility is. And Got really it. the part of the country too, the region of the country. So it's going to be a lot cheaper down where I'm at in you know South Carolina than it's going to be up in New York or New Jersey, for example. Got it. And just to give us a sense then, so let's say then I invest that million dollars to go ahead, open the Taco Bell. Um, what did the royalty fees tend to be? And so like what percentage of the revenue or is it on the bottom line? What percentage is Taco yeah. Bell at the parent level taking from me, the individual kind of franchisee operating this day to day? Yeah, that's going to range also, Allie. So Typically, it's going to be between four and six percent. Sometimes it could be a little higher for you know some smaller concepts that don't do as high of revenue, and then and then the the franchise fee is the upfront fee that you would pay. So um, that could be anywhere from twenty five to sixty five thousand dollars is the upfront fee on a per location basis. Okay. Um, truthfully, yes, yeah, some of that can be negotiated as well, but all those numbers, the royalties, the fees, um, there's going to be a marketing component that's going to cost you a couple of percent. That's based on on net sales or sales, you know, outside of what you pay in your sales tax. So the fees are off the top, and then and then how how you manage the business is going to is going to determine, you know, how profitable the business is, what you're able to take to the bottom line. Got it. Um, and you mentioned kind of the franchisor agreement that is very kind of uh, important when you're evaluating these deals. Are there any red flags that you've seen or um, look for off the bat? that any of our athletes, clients should be thinking about if they're looking at these? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So if, if you're evaluating a franchisor, some of the things you want to look at include um, the litigation section. So how many, there? that will be disclosed in the franchise disclosure document. Litigation is typically some relationship that didn't go well with the franchisee and, and they're potentially being sued. So the franchisee is suing the franchisor or vice versa. Typically you see a countersuit in those types of scenarios, but if you have pages and pages of litigation in a, in a document like that, then that's a red flag, honestly. That means a lot of franchisees got into the system, felt like it was a mistake, possibly, probably were losing money, and maybe there were some claims that were made by the franchisor that didn't turn out to be um, truthful at the end of the day. And so there's lots of brands that have had, you know, have even been in the news as it relates to some of their litigation component um, through the years. But 
that's one of the things I would look at as it relates to potential red flags with the franchisor. And then there's also a section in the franchise disclosure document that will talk about openings and closings. So you don't want to join a concept that has net closings on an annual basis, which means they're closing more than they're opening, obviously. So you want to have you want to have happy franchisees open locations. And so your best source of information over and above the franchise disclosure document that has all the data is going to be franchisees within that system. So like the franchisees won't hold back either. So you could call a franchisee in the system, you know, if, if it's a if it's a larger system, there's gonna be franchisees across the country that you could speak with and they'll let you know. The the one question I would ask them is, are you building more locations? And if they say I'm building them as fast as I can, I mean they're making that means they're making good money. And so it's probably a, con a concept to consider. Got it. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely helpful. I mean, you essentially get a window into what you're signing up for, kind of what you're um, looking to do. That makes sense. Um, so taking a little bit of a step back, why why is it that companies elect to do a franchise model as opposed to running all of the locations themselves? So you look at um, kind of some of these that chains that do run all of these stores, all of these locations themselves, as opposed to being able to franchise out to all these random other um, kind of operators. Why is it that they do that? Well, it just depends on the objective of whoever owns the concept. Lots of the concepts these days are owned by private equity, and they've got a they've got a strategy to to get in, develop the concept as rapidly as possible through you know prob probably through franchising, and then and then to get out at some point once they raise the once they raise the um, the EBITDA to a certain level, and then they're able to get a certain multiple of cash flow on a resale of that business. And so, um, I think I think. I think there seems to be in strategic developing concepts, and when I say strategic, I mean concepts that are operating, that are operational concepts. That McDonald's, for example, is a long-term concept that wants to operate restaurants um, and own real estate more than likely. But typically, you see about a 15 to 20 percent ratio of franchise to franchise uh, franchise-owned corporate-owned locations to franchise-owned locations. Franchisors want to keep some skin in the game, kind of understand how to operate the business. It gives them credibility. Yeah, it makes them a viable operator because if they're just selling franchises, then how do they really know what's going on at the unit level and how do they really know what the box economics are if they're dependent upon franchisees to grow and run the system? Why do they franchise? Just it, it's not as huge of a capital investment. Anytime a corporate opens up a corporate location, they're spending that million to two million dollars themselves. They open a franchise location. The franchisee is spending the money. They're taking the risk. And the only commitment from the franchisor is to essentially monitor train for the opening but once the stores are up and running you could have you could have one corporate employee overseeing dozens and dozens if not hundreds of locations um, your revenue won't be as high but your risk is way lower as well and uh, the franchise model the franchise multiple model is is much more healthy than the franchisee operating model for sure got it so as kind of we think about it you can invest at the franchise level but there's also the potential to invest at the franchisor level. Um, from an investor's perspective, do you think it's better? Is there a better option to invest at the franchisor level, like at the parent who are collecting the fees, or at the franchisee level? Well, again, it depends on what your what your objectives are. If you're investing, you know, my opinion, like if you're investing at the franchisor level, you're probably not going to be an owner unless you created the concept and grew it, or you're the acquirer of the concept. So that's going to be more of a true um, security type investment. But if you're investing at the franchisee level, let's say you decide to build 
five of something in some town. Maybe you go out your hometown and you build five Zaxby's, for example. Um, you could go in, you could own that 100% of that business. So you, you choose great locations. Maybe you want to own real estate. So you want to buy the real estate in whatever town you came from and you want to uh, operate the business on top of the real estate. So you would have multiple cash flow opportunities to, you know, to do that. And so um, I think it's just a different model. You're, you're a true operator when you're investing at the franchisee level. You're more of an investor when you're investing at the franchisor level. Got it. So would you say there's more risk in one in the franchisee level than at the franchisor level? I would say there's definitely more risk in investing as a franchisee. And, you know, one of the one of the questions I saw was like, have you, have you had some great successes and some and some things you regret? Of course, you know, after all the years I've been in this business, I've, I've had I've made mistakes. Um, I would say don't fall in love with a brand. You know, um, I would say if, if you're, you know, do extensive due diligence on a concept that you're interested in. The most important thing is the unit level economics. So how are how are those stores doing as it relates to the economics of those locations? What are their average sales? What are their prime numbers, which would be their food, their paper and labor, which are, big, are your big, biggest expenses in the restaurant? What does it cost to build? So in other words, what are the projected sales based upon the investment? What are the sales to investment ratios? Typically you want three times the sales for your investment. So in other words, if you invest a million dollars, you know, your target should be at least two, if not $3 million of sales for that concept. And you want to have what, what I call prime numbers, which would be your food, paper, and labor numbers, 55% or below in whatever concept you're investing in. And you want to have proof of the concept too. So like if you, if you fall in love with the concept and the unit level economics look great um, and it's a regional concept, then try to go at least contiguous to the region where they have success. So in other words, if you've got a concept that has 50 locations in an area that you love in, in the middle of Florida and you want to open up that concept, I would be hesitant to open that concept despite its success in, in Orlando, Florida or wherever, I would be hesitant to go to Colorado and just open up a location, you know, like leapfrogging states and doing that. Go where, go where the concept works, which is why one of the reasons I bought Popeyes in Louisiana when I bought them is because you know, I knew they were way under potentialized in that market. And so when you're looking at a concept, you've got to love what you're selling. So you've got to love the menu, but the unit level economics are the most critical component to evaluate. Got it. I guess one other question kind of off that is, are there any other metrics that you take account of when evaluating a franchise investment opportunity, whether that's at the franchise e-level, if that's a group of different restaurants that you're looking at, or if it's looking at a new restaurant that you're trying to open in a new location, what are some of the main metrics that you will look at? Again, I wanna, I wanna know what the average sales are. I wanna know what the prime numbers are, the food, paper, labor. I wanna know what the EBITDA margin is. You know, Typically, if the EBITDA margin is not 20%, I'm probably not gonna be interested in, in what I mean by EBITDA margin. The way you define profit in the restaurant business is by EBITDA, and that just stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So whatever that number is, it's a percentage of your gross revenue over the course of an annual basis. So for example, if your EBITDA margin is 20% and your store does a million dollars, then you should make $200,000 in profit on that restaurant. So that's what I look at. I want an EBITDA margin of 20%. And that's really going to be a function of how well your manager runs the restaurant, what the what the restaurant's prototypical food, paper, and labor numbers are, and what the sales are. The higher you can drive the sales, and the better you can manage those food those those margins, 
um, the better your EBITDA is going to be. The other critical part of that is the occupancy costs. And when I say occupancy costs, I mean things like your rent, your utilities, and those sorts of things, because you want to keep that within a specific um, range of your overall, overall revenue. And I like to target on a business I'm looking at, I want to target some probably five to 8%, depending upon where you are on, um, on the occupancy. It's probably going to be higher in New York City than it is in, you know, in, in the outskirts of Charlotte, North Carolina, for example. But um, what, I've, what I've become, what I've started to focus on personally are undervalued assets. And so I like to find a restaurant that is currently operating as whatever it is I'm going to operate it. And if I see there's room to improve that business, then I can improve it and then I can resell it at some point down the road. Got it. And so what are the, I guess, when you take over those locations, what are the main things that you're improving that like you, where you really feel like you're able to get extra earnings from the same amount of net sales? Like what, what are some of those kind of cost efficiencies or value adds that you're able to think about? Well, I'll just give you an example. So when I was evaluating um, a business I was looking at in Baton Rouge, which was 18 Popeye's locations in Baton Rouge. So down in Southern Louisiana, Popeye's, that's just chicken to everyone that's down there. Like everybody knows Popeye's. So I didn't have to be a marketing genius to convince people that, hey, this is here's a Popeye's restaurant. When I looked at the, the stores in the Baton Rouge market, what I saw were sales that were significantly lower than the New Orleans market and significantly lower than the Lafayette market. So I knew there was something going on. Like, why are they literally 60% maybe of their neighboring market areas? And when I went and evaluated, I looked at all the restaurants, I went in and I saw that the facilities had not been taken care of over the past previous 20 some odd years. The operations were in, in abysmal shape. And, you know, that, that really overjoyed me because I knew that when I saw that business, it was being way under, way under potentialized. It literally took us about a year to get that business back. And we started seeing uh, double digit same store sales improvements. Once we invested back in the facilities, showed up and started paying attention to the people, improved the, um, improved the operations at the unit level. And then, you know, ultimately I ended up selling that business about five years later for way more than I paid for it. So that ended up being a good thing. But I like to find an un undervalued, undervalued location and try to improve it. Um, I think there's opportunity there because it takes a lot of the risk out of it. If you already know what the business is doing, you kind of know what, what the downside is, as opposed to building a brand new freestanding location somewhere. It's a roll of the dice. You may hit a home run, you may hit a foul ball. And I've done that as well. Got it. That makes sense. Um, and I guess, so in this case, you're really operating it and you're taking on all of kind of the hands-on dirty work of figuring all of that out. There are also cases where um, many of our clients have options to invest in kind of operators or maybe there's a group of restaurants that's already being run by an operator. And so you're really betting on that operator's ability to continue to run the restaurant or to make the improvements that you're talking about. Um, so is there, are there red flags to look for with the operators or um, kind of how can you identify a good operator in the franchise business? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And, and truthfully, like the restaurant business, the labor component, the operational component of restaurants right now is the biggest, is the most difficult thing that people are doing. I mean, we're seeing restaurants close because they can't be staffed right now. And so that's a huge challenge. Um, I'm a firm believer in giving the operator 
a stake in the business, not necessarily equity. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to give them a piece of the equity when I, I'll, I'll give them something if I sell, but, uh, but what I, what I will give them is 10 or 20% of the profit. I'm more than happy to do that and, and give them a very competitive salary. I'm willing to overpay on salary, give them a percentage of the profit so that they have a vested interest in making sure that business runs. So in addition to what I'm willing to offer as a compensation to, to operators, I want to know, I want to vet that operator. Like, I want to know like their track record, their history, you know, how long have they been with the concept? Um, why did they leave their, leave their last job? Are they open to me? Like calling whoever their previous supervisor or owner was to talk about that person. And so I, you just want to vet them the same way you would vet most any employee. But to me, a key component is giving them, you know, like a reason to be like giving them sweat equity. Yeah, that makes sense. So everyone's yeah. incentives are fully aligned. Um, that makes complete sense. Um, I guess one other question is, how can you identify when a franchise concept with just a few locations is really going to take off? I feel like oftentimes um, we've seen a ton of these where it's kind of the projection of having hundreds across the country, but they might only have five right now. Is there anything that anything that you think is the key to look for in those scenarios um, for is this going to be a successful play across the whole U.S. or is this just a regional thing? Is this just a 10 location um, company? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, again, I, I don't I've taken risk in this business and I've been burned by it. So I just go back to the same formula that I've used, which is I want to see success in a regional market. There's a concept. I'm, I'm a. I'm doing some consulting for a concept out of Los Angeles called the coffee bean and tea leaf. And as I've looked at their competitors, um, there's a concept out of Arkansas called uh, seven brews. There's only eight locations currently in, in Northwest Arkansas, but their unit level economics are almost, almost blow my mind to the extent that I don't believe them, but they must be true because they're in the franchise disclosure document. And that's a, that's a highly regulated document. They've got eight locations. They have 500 square foot um, facilities and they advertise north of $2 million in sales and, and great EBITDA numbers. But there's only eight locations. But supposedly they have over a thousand in development, which means someone's taking the risk on that concept in, in markets from coast to coast if they're signed that many locations as a result of that base business in Arkansas. The, I know that the folks that are signing those deals are probably, there's several large Taco Bell franchisees that are taking that risk and can absorb a failure. If I was coming in brand new to this business, I would not take the risk on Seven Brew. Despite what they say, even with their success in their core market, I wouldn't take it until someone else had proven it out. Like let the frontiersmen go in and, and you know, like the early adopters go in and vet the concept in, in outer markets. And then there will be opportunity to get into it at a, at a point down the road. But there, I don't think there's really a way that you could say a concept is going to be successful until you actually see it happen. And so yeah. I, I don't consider myself an early adopter of a concept. I want to see it proven out, you know, uh, across the country before I jump in. And um, because I have jumped in before and I've been burned. So sometimes it is too good to be true, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, Kind of shifting a little bit then, what are um, reasonable returns you would expect to see on these investments? I know that that'll likely depend on if you're choosing to own real estate and um, is there a typical hold period? Um, and then as we've seen more private equity kind of get into the space, who are the typical buyers for these types of assets? Yeah, the private. there's a lot of private equity uh, folks that are 
primarily focused on this space and they understand like buying and selling these businesses based upon a multiple. So they're going to have a minimum level of EBITDA before they're willing to invest. Typically on the low side, they may go down to five or $10 million of EBITDA before they're willing to invest. And if they grow that EBITDA to a, to, you know, a significantly higher number, then, then the multiple that they sell that business for will also increase, increase significantly. So, um, and that's their objective. And, and the truth is like, if they're buying a franchisor, the franchisor multiple is even higher than a franchisee multiple. So the, a, a franchisor that owns 100 locations in their portfolio with, you know, that's 90% franchise will be able to sell that entire concept for way more than any individual franchisee will be able to sell their 10 or 20 locations, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, but yeah, but as far as like, you know, which, what your targeted return is, and you know what your potential is to make money on it. I'll, I'll give you another example of a concept. And I wasn't looking to get in to Captain D's, for example, but there was one that hit my radar screen. I live in Charleston, South Carolina. It was it was you know a poorly operated store. It wasn't marketed well. I knew it. I looked at the FDD and the margins. It looked like it was a pretty good bet in terms of the unit level economics. There was a real estate component, which interests me now. I like to own real estate. I don't wanna be beholden to a landlord for 10 or 20 years, and I don't wanna sign personal guarantees. So I was able to go in, I bought I bought this Captain D's for $500,000. That was in the end of 2017. I improved it. And of that 500,000, I put $70,000 of my own money into it and financed the balance through a bank, through a lender here in the, in the, in the South Carolina area. I put about $75,000 in improvements in the business. So I had about $575,000 invested between bank money and the money that I equity I put in. My total investment was about $75,000. I improved that business over the ensuing four years to the tune of the first year, I think I made about $75,000 on it. By the fourth year, I'd made about $225,000 in profit on it. So in the four years I owned it, I made over $800,000 in profit. And then I sold it for over for about 1.4 million. So I owed about 400,000 to the bank. I put, I made a million dollars, you know, on the investment. So between the, 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 the annual EBITDA profit and what I sold it for, I made about $1.8 million in a four and a half year period on a $75,000 investment. But it had a real estate component which I like. And, you know, th those are the kinds of deals I like to look for. I knew it was undervalued when I bought it. Got it. So can you talk, I guess, a little bit about the real estate component? And so do you still own the real estate even when you sell then the concept? Or can you just give a little bit of a brief overview in terms of sure. how people could think about the real estate options that there are that even exist in the area? I tried to keep the real estate because <clears throat> I sold it. I called the corporate Captain D's and they own the rest. That was the other thing I looked at was when I buy something, I want to see if there's a possible buyer. I mean, when I buy something, I want to see if there's a possible buyer down the road that I could resell the business to once I improve it. And I knew that corporate Captain D's operated the rest of the Charleston market. So this was just kind of a, you know, an outer store that, you know, I was able to grab. Um, but when I, when I sold it to corporate Captain D's, I, would have preferred to keep the real estate, but they wanted to buy the real estate in the business. So I had to sell the real estate, but I did keep some real estate on the Baton Rouge Popeyes. And, you know, that to me is one of the best investments you can make is in a triple, you know, what we call a triple net lease on real estate, which means that the lease, the, the tenant is paying for all the fees associated, all the annual fees associated with maintaining that real estate. Um, which includes the property taxes, all the maintenance on the building, all the insurance, and they indemnify the landlord. 
So for so when I sold the business in in Louisiana, and when I say I kept the real estate, the 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 new tenant, the new franchisee came in, purchased the business, and didn't purchase the real estate. So they continue to pay me rent on that facility. And it's, you know, again, it's that triple net rent. So the rent comes in, I don't have to pay anything. They're being held to account by the franchisor to make sure the facility stays in good shape. And I just honestly just collect a check as a landlord that comes in every month from the tenant who happens to be a large private equity group. So they're a safe tenant, they're a good credit tenant. And, um, if I can keep real estate after I've operated a business for a while, I would always prefer to do that. It's just from from a long term legacy perspective, it's it's typically a great a great investment, and typically the leases are at least ten or twenty years, so it's it's long term passive income. Yeah, and also you have then the insight into the business and know how well it's being operated, and so you have the year yeah. of history, not track. Yeah, typically the tenant is. Yeah, I'm sorry. Typically, the tenant is required to provide financials so they can they show you some periodic financials, at least annual. You can know how the business is doing, et cetera. And, you know, I'll take you even one step further. It might be getting too far in the weeds here, but you would you can you can actually go out and buy real estate from underneath concepts like Chick-fil-A or McDonald's or Popeye's or whomever. And that real estate is valued based upon what they call a cap rate. So the net income of the business divided by the um but divided by the cap rate would give you the total value of that property. But those properties are for sale. Just you could Google, you know, triple net properties for sale and and find them. Or so that's really you know, more of a real estate play. If that's you're on the real estate the real estate game versus the franchise is more of the actual operations of the business, getting involved in kind of the operations and the day-to-day. But versus if you do both, then you could potentially use it as a entrance into the real estate play for the longer term is kind of what that's exactly right i'm under construction right now on a on a business in western north carolina that i bought the real estate i'll improve the i'm improving the building right now i'm renovating the building we'll open in six weeks i'll operate that business you know for probably three or four or five years and then i'll go and put it on the market and sell it someone will buy it or they'll buy the business and lease the property from me my my objective would be to keep the real estate but my main objective would be to sell, you know, for, you know, an improvement over what I paid to get into it and operate it for a while. But if I can keep the real estate, I, I would always prefer to keep the real estate. Got it. Um, I guess, so we've covered some of your successes and this is kind of a tough question, but can you talk a little bit about one of them that might not have gone as planned or um, kind of some lesson that you might've learned through um, any of your failures <laughs> along the way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the main thing is just don't fall in love with whatever it is. Like, don't go into a restaurant and say, wow, this is great. It's going to work. It's going to work great and fill in the blank. So maybe you maybe you want to open up something in your hometown and you love this concept. Have a have an extreme familiarity with the numbers and really understand like how that business makes money and also the the location component. So, you know, I I open up you know, with with some partners, a restaurant in North Carolina that didn't have success in its in its outer market. It was it was a, an Alabama concept that had no proven track record, but we we opened it anyway. Um, the other thing to remember is franchisors are salespeople. So if you call a franchisor and say, you know, I want to open up a franchise, they're going to vet you your operational um, capabilities as well as your financial capabilities. But at the end of the day. They want to open up a store. They want to open up a restaurant. So 
take everything they say with a grain of salt. You know, I hate to be cynical, but that's just the way it is. And, and I've been on both sides of the business. My philosophy personally is if I wouldn't be willing to invest my own money into something, I really have a hard time compelling someone else to, to do it. So from a development perspective, I, I try to, and I've walked away from consulting engagements, et cetera, because of that very thing. But, um, but we opened up a concept in North Carolina that had already failed seven times previously in the state. That should have been a huge red flag. It, all of them hadn't failed at the time we opened, but they were they began to close more and more frequently. Um, when you look back at the FDD, the unilevel economics didn't meet the criteria they should have met, you know, based upon my own personal thresholds. Like I made an exception because I was in love with the menu. I loved it. I thought there's no way it could do wrong. It was a complete mistake. It was uh, the footprint was way too big. The sales to investment ratios were off. So everything I said as it relates to evaluating the concept, the unilevel economics and what you need to look for in the FDD and your due diligence. I didn't do enough due diligence with French with existing franchisees in the system especially the ones that were in outer markets. Everything I've talked about that I should have done, if I would have done, probably would have avoided this mistake. So if you stick with your formula and you don't know what to look for and you stick to your guns and you, and you gather information and you go through your due diligence and you talk to franchisees and you understand the FDD and the Unilevel economics, you should be able to avoid mistakes. Got it. And I have one question that just came in from an athlete. Um, just while we're on kind of on that topic, but um, I guess it's been reported that Shaq owns like 150 plus um, burger joints. Um, what type of infrastructure would look, what would that look like to manage a portfolio of that size? Like how large do you think a team or what does that require? Well, if, if he's a franchisor, I don't know if he built that concept from unit number one to unit 150, or if he acquired unit one, you know, acquired the 150 and then is growing it from there. So it just depends on how he entered the business. But to have 150 unit location, if it's a franchisor, it's a franchisor versus a franchisee is going to be one thing, or you know, franchisor is going to be one thing, franchisee is going to be another. So if it's a 150 unit franchisor, he's obviously going to have an executive team that's going to have senior level, you know, operational marketing, training, purchasing, distribution, and franchising people, development, real estate, and construction. Um, so he's going to have those people as, you know, quote unquote, corporate overhead in the field, dependent upon a couple of things, the geographic disbursement of the locations and the complexity of the operation would determine his above store supervision of the field. So if he's got if if each one of these, you know, do one point five million and they're in a tight market, say they're in, I don't know, St. Louis and there's 50 locations in St. Louis, he may have he may have five directors of operations running those locations, each of them responsible for the performance of 10 locations under them. And, and then inside of, the, inside of each location is gonna be the restaurant staff, which would be typically a general manager, one or two assistant managers, depending upon, again, the, uh, the complexity of the operation and the level of sales that they're doing, and then shift supervisors and then hourly employees. So it, it all comes back to managing that labor, back to what I told you on the prime numbers, the food, paper, and labor, the most important components. So understanding what that pro forma requires at the unit level would determine like the, the staff that you have to have in that restaurant. But the complexity of the operation and the geographic disbursement is going to determine like his above store component. And then he's going to have some marketing support in the field, probably, and some additional kind of administrative support. But it's going to be an organization that has a CEO, a chief marketing officer, a chief development officer, a VP of construction, a VP of real estate, a, ch a chief financial officer, um, and then and then support folks underneath them. 
That's a massive, that's a massive undertaking, it sounds like. Well, and I know Shaq's been, he's been extremely successful. You know, he's involved with, with Papa John's. He's been involved with the turnaround there. He understands clearly the restaurant business. You know, another thing I was going to say, Allie, is like, there's so many ex-athletes that are in this business. You know, there's a guy called Donnell Thompson, who's a Checkers franchisee, you know, right up the road from a couple of Checkers that I own. He's a former New England Patriots guy for 10 years, went to UNC. He's been a McDonald's franchisee, a Choice Hotels franchisee, super nice guy. I was at a uh, I was at a conference in Denver last week, an airport conference. There's a guy, there was a guy there that I met that has is bidding on behalf of the coffee bean and tea leaf, which is the concept of I'm working. He's he's in airports too. That's another opportunity for folks is to get into airport in the airport business. Yeah. But Ray Mickens is a former uh, New England Patriot as well. His son plays for Clemson. Um, but he's a Wendy's franchisee in the Dallas-Fort Worth market and is a um, just a super nice guy. Would be more than thrilled, I think, to talk to any you know fellow athletes looking to make this investment. Um, I, I, I had a call with A.C. Green. Just A.C. calls me on a routine basis. He was with the Lakers for many, many years, the Iron Man of the NBA. He calls me whenever he has questions about, now we were reviewing a concept called Nectar Juice a few, you know, a while back. And um, so anytime he has something that hits his radar screen, he calls me, but there's lots of athletes, ex-athletes in this business for sure. So kind of going off that, one of the other questions that we received was, what advice would you have for athletes looking into the franchise space? And also, should they be getting better deals if they were looking to invest in some of these? Are they able to kind of leverage who they are to get some negotiating power? That, that's a possibility. It just depends upon the brand, honestly. I mean, but there's ways, like the, the most recent deal, that the, one of the stores I'm building right now, Honestly, my wife is fronting as the CEO because, and, and we put the LLC in her name for the simple fact that if you're a minority, there's no franchise fee. So there's 40,000 bucks right out the gate. They just, that went right to zero because it was her, not me. And wow. they're going to, they're going to cut her royalty down from 4% for the first year to 2%. So that's 2% right off the top. If I do 2 million bucks, that's 40,000 bucks right out the gate plus $40,000 fee. There's 80 grand right out the gate that I'm not having to pay because they're offering incentives. Now, Location number two, she won't qualify because she's. this is only for new franchisees, but right. I'll break out the veteran card on location number two and I'll use it, you know, to get the free fee, et cetera. So there's there's ways you can negotiate some of these things and the negotiability of the franchisor is dependent upon, honestly, how established they are. It's probably going to be a whole lot easier to negotiate with that seven brew concept that's got eight locations in Arkansas than it's going to be to negotiate with, you know, Taco Bell has got tens of thousands. Yeah. Kind of going off one other question that just came in, and I know we're kind of getting to the end of the 45 minutes no, here. Um, how hard is it to acquire a franchise like Chick-fil-A, I know, has a waiting list? And so I guess, are there brands that simply aren't going to ever take on more franchisees? Or is there a period where they'll say, okay, no franchisees for these couple of years, and then they open it back up? Or how does that all work? Yeah, it could go both ways. I mean, when I went to work for Arby's many, many years ago, they they hadn't franchised in many years. So they actually brought me on board to help them set up a franchising program. And, you know, we went out first to the existing franchisees that already knew the brand and offered them opportunity to develop additional locations. Chick-fil-A is one that I know pretty well because my son-in-law actually works for Chick-fil-A in the Greenville, South Carolina market. And his he's trying to become a Chick-fil-A franchisee. That one I can't figure out if you can figure out what the secret handshake is, then you could you could get it in. But um, if you can get a Chick-fil-A franchise, that's a ticket to the instant millionaires club for sure. But there, it just depends on the concept. Honestly, a lot of them are negotiable. 
you know, to a degree, some of them not. There's a lot of incentives, like I talked about, you know, Checkers is doing incentives where they'll, if you commit to a certain number of locations, they'll waive fees and royalties. I'm negotiating a deal in Chicago right now with a group of, with a couple of, of guys that are, want to develop out that market and, um, you know, Cook and Lake and DuPage counties. You know, we'll, we'll give them something back on royalties, et cetera. But the big expense of this business is the actual cost to develop the location, the fees, the royalties, et cetera. Like if you get open in a successful location, whether you're paying 4% or 5%, you won't really care because you're probably, you probably hit a home run. Um, if it's struggling, you will care. <laughs> but, but you know, for the most part, it's, uh, there is some negotiability dependent upon the concept. Not a tremendous amount, I think, for the most part, for, for most concepts that you want to be involved with. Got it. That makes sense. Um, well, thank you so much, Scott, for all of your insights. This has been super interesting and helpful. And um, I know I can tell that a lot of our um, clients are super interested in the space and everyone's always asking questions. So um, I will definitely um, reach out as we have con questions continue to trickle in um, so that we can get those all answered. But thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Um, and to our PCO clients, thank you for dialing in and for um, kind of tuning in and feel free to reach out, as I said, with additional questions as they come up or come to mind following this conversation. We're always happy to um, kind of continue answering these. And um, we're thank you so much, Scott, for um, joining us tonight. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. Y'all have a great evening. All right. I'm always tonight. available, by the way, if anybody has any questions. Great. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye.